Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 118. So glad you could join me tonight. Uh, we have a great guest. Ananda Lima is here. She'll be online in about 15 minutes. Uh, before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, which is why you're listening to this broadcast. So please do click the like button or leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to this, Spotify, I don't know, it goes all over the place. Um, leave something to let the computers know that this is good content that they should share to their other, other viewers, including ones who subscribe to our own channel too. Uh, that's how it works. You have to click stuff to let them know that you like it. And uh, so please do that if you would. Now, we always like to start with a little Poets Respond. And today's poet, um, Madeline Gallo, is going to be here. And let's call her up and talk about her poem, Abba Makes Its Comeback After 40 Years. Hey, Madeline, can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? <laughs> I can, yeah, you're live on the air. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad you could join us to talk about this poem, um, Abba Makes Its Comeback After 40 Years. Uh, do you want to start out just by describing a little bit about what inspired the poem and, and how it came to be? Sure, of course. And thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. Um, so for this poem, I wanted to write about two things that are very important to me that just kind of happened to coincide in an interesting way for the timing of this poem. Uh, like many, I was really thrilled to hear that one of my favorite bands of all time, ABBA, was releasing a new album after 40 years without music. And this was really special for me because being a little on the younger side, I never got to experience the release of any of their music when it was new. But in a way, I think that also made the band more special because I got to grow up listening to their entire collection of music with my dad who introduced me. And now I have this rare opportunity to experience their new album, Voyage, from an adult perspective, which is something I never would have thought I'd get to do when I was younger. So it's pretty amazing. I've had this wonderful time listening to Voyage and discovering how beautiful and timeless these women's voices have remained. And it's really inspired me since I was very young. And so I found it kind of poignant that the album would debut after 40 years, the same week that I passed 40 days without a menstrual cycle, which is something I always worry about. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy, these little patterns that arise in our personal lives, these combinations of beauty and fear we find and experience. Yeah, it's, it's just weird that the, um, the way the world throws things at us and then the associations we make to, to make poems out of them. Um, can you explain a little bit about what it is about ABBA in particular um, that, that, that draws you to them at a young age when you were a kid? What was it about, about them that, that made you fall in love with their music? Yeah, so my dad introduced me to ABBA. He's a huge ABBA fan. When I was just a little kid, he would drive me to school, me and my sister, on the way to elementary school, and he'd just put in their Best Of album. And we just, you know, listened to all of their songs. And I remember Super Trooper was my favorite at the time. And the chorus, he'd turn it up super, super loud. And we were always excited for that moment. And I was just always so, you know, I admired the two lead singers, the two women of the band so much and was jealous of them at the time, like living this pop star life. I thought it was just amazing. I, I just love everything about the band, to be honest. I'm kind of an ABBA geek. Yeah, well, that's really cool to hear. I mean, what I love about poetry always is the way that it lets you step into someone else's shoes and stuff. Like, I've never been, of course, a a twelve year old ABBA fan um, growing <laughs> up, or um, however old you were then. But um, but but for the whole poem, that's what what I am, and that's the just the amazing thing about poetry is that you get to step inside and feel what it's like to be someone else for for a few moments. And you really did that with this poem, I thought. 
Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that came through because I know that not everyone is going to be able to relate to the things that I talk about in the poem, the specifics of it, you know, missing a period or being an ABBA fan. But I'm glad that people are able to kind of join me in this journey that at least I had and connect to it in that way, just as I do when I read other people's poems about their own experiences. Yeah. Well, why don't you go ahead and read it? I'll put it up on screen for everybody at home. Okay, great. And I'm going to preface this with the fact that I'm not perfect at pronouncing Swedish names. I very much apologize for that, but I'm going to do my best. ABBA makes its comeback after 40 years. The same week, my app tells me it's been over 40 days since my last period. And I'm suddenly prepubescent again, testing whether I can separate Anieta's voice from Frida's while I down cups of pineapple squares, courtesy of Google's top 10 foods to induce periods. Like I'm still 10 years old and desperate jealous over my sister's yellow wrapped pads and scented tampons, failing to heed her warning to enjoy it while it lasts, instead wasting my time burning computer keys through PhD level research on how to start early, driven by menstrual envy. Like I'm still the kid rocking to Mama Mia with her dad, elementary school bound, holding the four CDs pressed back to back in their best of album case, glittering like grown up music. Now it's 15 years later for me, longer for ABBA, and Frida sounds pretty amazing for a woman pushing 76, remarks one anonymous Voyage reviewer, while I'm huffing through crunches on the bathroom floor, then counting digital red dots backward to my last cycle. So I'm already too aware of the number and only a little grateful for the app's nonchalance in telling me. Like it doesn't even matter. Like I haven't long given up on the crunches, feeling, staring, waiting for one ballad to swell into the next and then punching pause after pause to ward off the big silence when it's all finally finished and there's nothing new to listen for. I remember the MTV videos where Anieta and Frida dazzled in their tall boots and skirts and I was jealous, just starting to wear chunky denim jackets to middle school stitched together by my mother so I could carry my pads in my pockets. This was before I wore the insides of my ear raw with my buds, listening to Anieta belt what kind of woman she can be, and freezing at every little buckle and rumble inside me, hopeful a cramp might be coming on. Now my best friend and I gush over the resample of SOS in one tab while I explore the trending hashtag periods optional in another until I become a formless shadow seated in the corner stool, dunce capped, lectured on why blood does not equal woman. I know, but how to be grateful for what is not optional. The absence of the clean tissue or the fortress of pads I build whenever this waiting happens like the sheer tower-sized height of my wanting is enough to overflow me. I want the harmonies to continue. Sejuras are scary. One inhaled note bridge too long renders me faithless. You don't want this, said my sister in the backyard once, a red spot stained on her shorts. You don't want this, my father, when the scratch CDs were finally trash can bound. How then to explain this continuous voyage of my wanting? Half the songs I feel like I've already heard, but this is where I seek comfort. This repetition of redo and rediscover. I keep my track list of red dots on repeat, relieved by the howl of women's voices. I want, I want, I want. 
Madeline Gallo, thanks so much for joining us and reading that poem. Uh, just a wonderful thing to share. I'm glad you could do it. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here, really. Thank you. Okay, have a good night. You too. Yeah, that was Madeline Gallo with uh, Abba Makes Its Comeback After 40 Years. Uh, today's Poets Respond poem. And uh, I thought we'd go back in time a little bit, too, which makes uh, good sense given that Abba's going back in time. And uh, let's go to this poem from November 16th, 2014. So this is seven years ago, um, and this is a poem by Lynn Knight. Uh, one of the f- this is the first year of Poets Respond, so we've been doing it for seven, seven years now. And uh, this is On Hearing of Robin Williams' Diagnosis. And this is one of our favorite poets, Lynn Knight, who was, um, she was the guest on Rattlecast number maybe around 20 somewhere, if you want to find her episode. And uh, here she is, though, On Hearing of Robin Williams' Diagnosis. And this was a poem, uh, Robin Williams' death actually was one of the first big news events that we covered with Poet Respond. It was that year in 2014. Um, when he died, I think it was in August or maybe July that summer, um, it was one. It was the first time we had over like 200 submissions for one week, and it was there were a lot of poems to choose from. I think we published two about Robin Williams, and this comes a few months after uh, when when after the autopsy results were revealed and in the the story of what was going on with Robin Williams. So uh, let's hear Lynn Knight read this poem. On hearing of Robin Williams' diagnosis, my mother had Lewy body dementia too, a late diagnosis. Eight years of losing all trace of herself, like someone following her shadow into a forest that got deeper and deeper until it became what Thoreau called Standing Night. Her name was Night, so sometimes I would think of her as Standing Night, her shadow lost altogether by then, her words, her understanding. So when I heard that Robin Williams had the same ruinous disease. I thought what a generous thing he had done. What a courageous thing. Without the help of drugs or alcohol or anyone, not wanting to implicate anyone in his death, in a state where assisted suicide is forbidden. I thought if there were an afterworld where the soul is restored to its original form, my mother would find her way to Robin Williams and tell him he'd done the right thing, the thing she would have done if she'd known all she had coming. But I don't believe the soul continues. The spirit lives on in the hearts of others, so Robin Williams will live as close as it gets to forever. As for my mother, She'd be content to know how much my sister and I miss her, how we still talk to her, how we rely on her wisdom to stand us by on darkest nights. And that was Lynn Knight reading on hearing of Robin Williams' diagnosis. And this was her note, which I'll read too. When my mother was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia in January of 1999, there were only four or five websites that had any information about it. But now it's recognized as the second most common form of dementia, after Alzheimer's. Because I believe that had my mother known what she had coming, she was diagnosed four years into the illness. She would have committed suicide. I was deeply moved by this news about Robin Williams. I'm glad he was able to stop the disease before it turned him into someone not himself. 
That was uh, Lynn Knight's note on her poem on hearing of Robin Williams' diagnosis. And now let's move on to uh, our featured guest for today. And it's going to be Ananda Lima. And I'll put up a uh, little bit of music on the screen, call her up, and we will be right back. we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, our guest is Ananda Lima today. Ananda's poetry collection, Motherland, from Black Lawrence Press, was winner of the Hudson Prize. She's also the author of the chapbook's Vigil, um, Tropicalia, uh, winner of the Newfoundland Prose Prize, um, Ambliopia, and Translation. Uh, winner of the Vela Chapbook Prize. Her work has appeared all over the place, the American Poetry Review, Poets.org, Kenyon Review, a whole bunch of other places. She has served as the poetry judge for the AWP Kurt Brown Prize, a staff at the um, Sewanee Writers Conference, and as a mentor at the New York Foundation of the Arts Immigrant Artist Program. She has been awarded the inaugural Work in Progress Fellowship by the Latinx in Publishing, sponsored by Macmillan Publishers. Uh, for her fiction manuscript in progress. She has an MA in linguistics from UCLA and an MFA in creative writing and fiction from Rutgers University in Newark. And here she is, Ananda Lima. Hello, Ananda. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you could join us in, in, in Los Angeles, no less. I mean, you're usually oh, no. um, <laughs> based on the East Coast, yeah. but you're out here right now by chance. That's right. Yeah, that was really fun. <laughs> no time zone confusion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do you want to start us out with a poem? Um, what, what do you want to read first? Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to read a poem. I would just say that those poems that came before were so beautiful. That was really great. Um, yeah, so I'll start with a poem uh, called Seven American Sentences. So for people who are into this stuff it's uh they are like american sentences which is americanized haikus um and it's after another poem 37 uh haiku by ashbury but mine is just seven and i wrote it in an anniversary of sandra bland's death seven american sentences uh, it's on page seven <laughs> seven american sentences in the beginning where people who lived here before. In the beginning of spring, spirits hovering over the waters. The vault, evening, morning, sky, the second day after a shooting. Body, let it serve as a sign to mark times and days and years. Correction, George Washington's teeth were never made of wood. In the beginning of the end, missing signal for lane change. And on the seventh day, same thing again, only some rested. That was Seven American Sentences, one of the early poems in this just beautiful book, Motherland, uh, that Black Lawrence Press put out. I just love this cover. It's one of my favorite covers I've seen um, in a long time. I love it. And... Um, do you want to start out by just explaining about your your personal journey into poetry? Um, you're from Brazil, I know, and you you came as a linguistics student, right? And um, and okay. found poetry later, I believe. How, how was what was it about poetry, and and how did you end up becoming a poet? Yeah, so you know, I never sort of thought I'm going to become a poet. I really did come around sort of on the sides. Um, I came as a linguistics graduate student, and I. 
I wrote, but it was kind of a very, very secretive thing. And it was not poetry. It was more like fiction. Um, yeah, fiction. Um, after a while writing fiction, when I already told people many, many years later, let's say like 10 years later or 15 years later, um, I started getting like lines and I would write stories <laughs> to fit that line. And the stories, after like sweating on the story, I would realize the story is really crappy. I only like that line. <laughs> Why am I writing the story again around it? So it was a very sort of natural process. And I, I, I understood finally that I, I should just keep it at the lines. And I understood that I was writing poetry. Uh, but it was it, it took some time to realize that. And I, I want to talk a little bit about linguistics and, and what drew you to that and, and what that actually is. It's one of those things where it's like this <laughs> word I know of um, like, like Chomsky's universal basic grammar theory. And, and that's about all I know. I mean, I, I'm really fascinated by um, evolutionary biology and its role in language acquisition. I think that's really interesting. Uh, but I don't even know if that's linguistics. So, so what is <laughs> linguistics, and um, and what 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 drew you to that? Like, what what's your fascination um, with that that made you want to study it? I love that because you know when I was in that world, that was such an important question. You know, you're always like, no, I don't do this type of linguistics. <laughs> you know, like, um, I think I think there's a lot of different linguistics out there. I was doing, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Um, I was doing the Chomskyan variety, <laughs> so uh, so um, it's it's very much about uh, l let's say a branch of cognitive science or something like that, and it's very much uh, about figuring out the principles behind producing language, right? Like the language faculty. So it's very um, you know we don't talk that much, we don't go very much beyond the sentence. Usually looking at a word or phrase, you know, and drawing very complex diagrams. Um, so, so there were people doing, I don't know, applied linguistics or different types of linguistics that were talking about meanings of text and stuff like that. I never got to that. It was very much about seeing how words combine in English and cross-linguistically. And if you could come up with a universal theory that would cover English, but it would also cover other languages with small changes, mm -hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, but it was funny because people would say all this stuff that was not related, you know, it's, it's a, there, there's always funny dialogue come, like happening with people who are studying very high level mm -hmm. language and very low level. And there are many arguments between people when they're talking about different things. Mm -hmm. But I was talking about sort of computational things, and um, sentences, nothing ever big, bigger than a sentence. <laughs> so are you still working in that at all? Or are you using the past tense? Is that uh, is yeah, a, is a no, phase no, over? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it was wonderful. And I loved it. And what attracted to me, part of that, it, it was that I, as an undergraduate, I took a couple of classes. And it was very much puzzles, you know, like they'll give us a data set in whatever language, sometimes English, sometimes. And they'll go, why... What is the pattern? So you would have to sit and like figure out that. And usually it would take like a week with this data set and go, oh, every time there's a plural uh, of an indefinite after a voice sound, then this suffix is added. <laughs> you know, that was the kind of thing. But it was so such a wonderful 
uh, intellectual exercise. It was just very fun. And, and I still love it, but I think to have a career in it, it has to be your life just, um, because of the time and, and the precarity of being an academic, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to love that thing and that is your life and you don't want to do anything else. But for me, it was just like, I love this thing. But there's many other things that I love doing and that this is not my life, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, so, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of out of that world, even though sometimes I read uh, papers for fun just to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. it feels like, um, you know, your, your poetry is full of like a playfulness, it seems to me, on like the, the syntactic, like like level of the sentence or the line. And it, it, it seems like that might be part of it that, that you were drawn to and part of it manifesting in your poetry that way, right? That, I mean, you like to sort of, I don't know, it, there, there are a lot of little little subtle shifts and changes and, and th- th- things that repeat and have different meanings that it, you're, it feels like you're having fun with the actual language itself. Um, is that something that you think about when you write a poem? I love it that you saw that. I think that is very much part of the joy. You know, I had that that first intro into poetry that it just kind of just happened to me. And I thought, oh, this is poetry. But once I started doing it, that's exactly like what gives me a lot of energy when I'm writing is the syntactic play, you know, where you break. Maybe if you break the line in a certain position, the word that hangs there changes its syntactic category or something. And yes, little things and little switches, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, I really enjoy that. that. That's really fun for me. Well, let's, uh, let's read another poem. Um, I think you want to do Arroyo next, right? Perfect, yes. Okay. Um, so Arroyo, um, it's, I see this poem as a little bit of a, a sister poem to the poem I had in Rattle. Um, they the same thing (laughs) so but this one is much less accessible than you know like people Mm -hmm. you you may not see the straight away but they're they're similar um and i'm just gonna preface it like it references uh, i was at a party once and as you're doing parties we're talking about the letter a (laughs) um and the letter a somebody was saying oh you know the letter a came from the a bull's head or a cow's head uh, upside Mm -hmm. down um and I was like, oh, when I was walking home, my name has this three uh, heads staring at me, you know. And um, the, the, the kind of a tragedy of the region where my parents are in Brazil, it's drought. So the symbol of drought is the head right in the cracked dirt, the, the head. So I was like, it just felt like it was those heads were staring at me. So I wrote this poem. Arroyo. They say the first letter of my name evolved from a picture of a carcass. A cabeça de vaca sem as suas costelas espostas like claws or jaws ancient. My neighbor says not to let my son sleep on my bed, but I do. I know the terror. At night we're haunted by my great-great-great-grandparents, dry on cracked soil, Beating in the cold of my feet, the bahia and the bones they inhabit on my bed. In America, I learned that arroyos are paths carved by the rain, but I already knew. At night, the cracked soil calls for me, as cabezas de vaca of my greats, calling and calling. I tell them, I don't know you, but I do. 
The city spine is a split bifurcation solidified in calcium. In America, they eat the bagasse of oranges and say my name means bliss. I am in love with bone white concrete. The spine of the city sits fleshless and free of scales, flexible bones that can bend and bend and keep bending and keep bending and bending, bending right up until they snap. Yeah, and that was Arroyo. Um, after um, Nathaniel um, McKee in um, Tarantino Veloso, yeah. So mm-hmm. a lot of the poems are after, um, I think, songs. Is there, are those songs that? Um, so yeah, you can explain so, that a little bit. Yes, yes. So Caetano Veloso is a musician. So when this is Caetano Veloso, it's usually songs. He has very. Uh, his lyrics are very poetic. You know, like. Um, yeah, beautiful work. Um, and Nathaniel Mack is a poet, and he has this um, this way, this, I don't know, form where you have the hanging word. <laughs> so he writes like that. Um, and he also writes to songs in a lot of his work. Uh, so I kind of got the procedure and the sort of visual rhythm on the page from him. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Um yeah, and one of the things that stands out is that your your loose use of um, bilingualness, your uh, your Portuguese and English, um, intermixing in a way that it's interesting because on the on our critiquing podcast that we do once a week, a couple weeks ago, somebody um, had a lot of Spanish in a poem and included the translations. And one of the things, and I showed some examples of how I recommended not even doing that and just letting us sort of enjoy the convergence or something or the way that the two like mold together and, and letting readers be, um, I don't know, a little bit lost, but lost in like a good way or something. That's how it feels reading these poems. Like, you know, I know a little bit of Spanish, so a lot of the words are similar in Portuguese, so I can kind of notice some of them and others not. And you can look up some if they're really important and you can let them flow through you if not. And there's a way that it moves really organically through the two different languages. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about what you were th- like, why you chose to do it that way, and um, and just what your your thoughts are about the use of two different languages? Because most people, of course, don't speak both English and Portuguese. I don't know what percentage of the world's population do both of those two languages, but it's not that many. So, so what is your what are your thoughts about that? I love your description of it because this is very much part of what. I wanted, you know, to give something, but um, so there's a couple of things. There's a high level kind of thought, and then there's the just the fun of doing it. So at a high level, I know like that being like an immigrant here that came as an adult, right? So I didn't grow up here, um, and also I lived many different places. So I'm often very lost when people make references. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I have no idea what this person is talking about. And I think it's not just an immigrant experience. It's anywhere where you don't have the background. Like if you're like maybe a first generation college person or whatever. Um, so I'm often like enjoying these conversations and like I fill in the gaps and use context or whatever. Um, and it also happens in reading, you know, like you're reading something and there's something you don't understand. And sometimes you look it up, sometimes you don't. Um, 
so I think I wanted to give that experience to people. I really love that experience. <laughs> I enjoy it. I think that's part of why I go. I, I always travel, you know, like I, I enjoy that, that lost in a good way, mm. <laughs> you know, and I wanted that experience to be part of some of the poems. Um, and they're also very natural for my brain, right? Like, because I have both alive in my brain. Um, but in a more uh, micro level, like when it came to doing it, it became a thing that was very fun in a similar way, like of playing with the syntax. And, uh, uh, and there were so many things to play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that was very fun. So then it became a project uh, of thinking of ways where the the... Portuguese could exist with the English in a way that was interesting and in a way that varied how much they resist or how much they help each other. And it varied in what I give the reader. reader. So sometimes I give a little bit of more of a sonic thing. And I also love imagining that people who may speak Italian or Spanish uh, and also even English, you see the cognates there and it gives you an idea. Um, and some poems I do it differently. So like I uh, use some repeating forms like a pantoon and I will put a kind of translation on the line that you, where you expect repetition. But what happened is I was translating a Brazilian poet at the time and it was really lovely because I love her work. But I really wanted the poem to be as similar to her poem in whatever sense as possible. So when I translated, I I would be thinking, well, wouldn't it be great if I could do this here, you know? But I didn't do it for her, but I did it for me. So I never sort of committed to make a faithful translation. I I just did all the fun things that I can't do in a regular (laughs) translation. So it was really fun to do. Yeah, well, it's so nice to hear you use the words fun and play so much because that's what it seems like you're doing in these books. I mean, you know, all your poems, they're serious topics, but then you're playing with with the language and it just feels fun as you're doing it. Like it, like the, the joy that you have in writing kind of comes across. I think it's the strongest thing that comes across on the page is just how much you enjoy playing with the poems. Um, let, let's hear the next one. What do you, uh, I think Line was next, the one from Rattle. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So Line was in Rattle. Thank you so much. And, um, and I think this poem is one, like thematically, it captures so much of the book. So this is kind of my introductory poem for the book. <laughs> And a line, I inherited from my mother the knobbly joints and square ends of my fingers. From my father, I got the habit of biting my nails. Their shortness, the frayed missing skin had never bothered me. But now I have a son and he has begun to bite too. In America, I learned that I can snap a rubber band against my wrist each time my hand reaches up towards the mouth. On the back of my hand, the rubber band disappears into the color of my skin. But when I turn and face the inner side, it is a clear division of my body. The first time I saw a cotton tree, I found it beautiful, the cotton so white in its brown cradle, so soft against the square tips of my fingers. I squeezed the dead flower around it and felt joy from hearing it crackle. 
As children, we had cups full of sugarcane. We chewed on it and spit out the bagasse. Toothless men ran the knobbly stalks through a machine. The juice trickled into our glasses, and the flat piece that came out on the other side was put through it again until everything was gone. The dry split stalk thrown into a pile, limp like blonde hair. When I first arrived in America, I didn't understand what people meant when they said with an American accent that they were Irish or Italian or French. Now that I understand, I asked my mother for a family tree. She said she had never thought of such things and she wouldn't know much past her grandmother's first name. So what I have is my memory of the faces of my relatives and my own. When I first arrived in America, all I could see was beauty. The snow, fine like sugar, white like cotton, but now the beauty, the land, the tired metaphors just make me sad. Before I left for America, I saw an individual in the mirror, but today I see my father, my mother, my brothers, my son, and a man missing skin from tears on his back, and the man who did it. When I looked this morning, I tugged on my rubber band so hard that it broke. And that was Line from Motherland, Ananda's newest book. Um, and there's a great example of um, this kind of layering that you do. That, um, what was that line? The, um, where you say, um, when I first arrived in America, all I could see was beauty, the snow fine like sugar, white like cotton. And that you pick those two words, of course, um, you know, means something to the context of the poem, that it comes up later. And you do that other times, too, um, throughout the book. It's a really common thing that you do, having these really subtle references to different different layers, just in the word choices that you make. Like the other poem that we published, we might read at the end here, um, when they come for us on the seven train, um, has underground and railroad, like in two separate spots on the line, not together, but like... So you like hear it in the back, like subconsciously in your mind as it sort of takes a similar, you know, turn in that type direction. Um, so, so I'm, I'm just really curious how those kind of things come out in the poetry for you, like in the process of writing. Um, what I'm always fascinated by is the way that subconscious sort of like pulls up stuff that you don't know what you're really thinking about. And then you do. And that's like the magic of poetry. Is that what the process is like for you? Like, do you know? what you're writing while you write it, or do you surprise yourself throughout these poems? Very much surprise myself. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, this is great. I think uh, a lot of times I see it after the fact, I was like, oh, you know, after I wrote it, I'm like, yes, that 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 is what I was after, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's usually, um, this poem I was thinking a lot about a lot of this stuff in a very abstract level and it wasn't I want to write about it I was like wrestling with it I was reading books uh I had read that um homeco- homecoming uh I think I forgot who it was but, <laughs> but anyways it had a lot of this very long lineage you know uh it was for America the book but it was you know I I just really thought about Brazilian history as well so I was wrestling with that and I knew I wanted to write something but you know it's when you start writing 
oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Often I don't have any of the stuff before I write the first draft. Uh, sometimes I have a line or something, but very often the line is not, uh, it doesn't make it or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so it's it's as you said, like the subconscious. Uh, you're ro- working on it, but not not on the poem yet. It's just mm-hmm. the thing that will generate the poem. <laughs> yeah. So so the themes of this book are sort of motherhood and immigration, and the way that they merge together. Um, um, I don't know, like, like I mean, that the title almost says it all: motherland with the with the hyphen there, and then that makes you think, like, what is the difference between saying like a fatherland? Like, why do we use mother? And and what is a what is a homeland, and what is a mother? Like all these things sort of interplaying throughout the book. Um, how did you, like, what were you trying? Like, how did you know what the construction of the book was going to be? Like, when did you know that this was the topic that you were sort of mulling over? And and how did how did the title come about? And and how did the themes merge together? Right. So um, so I think um, you know, as as people sometimes say about first collections um. I was just writing poems for a long time, and then I had a lot of poems, and and then I was I was trying out different uh, possible boundaries for that thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but at some point, I think um, I think I think the, the 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 motherhood and the immigration poems were were just very frequent. Uh, so and and. Um, and I think the pool, those topics were having in my life at the time were very strong. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that because I also write fiction, you know, but my fiction is not about these <laughs> things. So I, I realized that I was sort of working on the book on on, on that. Um, but it still it took me a long time to find like a center of gravity for the book. So I had like this blob of many poems. And I think in my case, uh, I was going for a manuscript, but when I did a chat book, that really helped me. Because mm-hmm. then I understood, because that was much, it was very focused. And then I understood that that was kind of a center, that the chat book wasn't the collection, but that, that I centered around there and it sort of expand the boundary. Um, and that really helped me. Um, I think by the time the chapbook was out, uh, I kind of then knew what I was doing and, and where things would belong in the book or not belong on this book. Um, and then after I had the boundaries, it was a lot of uh, experimenting with the order and how to break it up. Uh, but I did have some poems that I felt were going to be in the beginning and some that I felt would be in the middle and some in the end actually stayed there. So I had this skeleton um, and then played around that for a while. Mm-hmm. And so so what do you think it is that they there is something and I couldn't like wrap my mind around it. But the but the, the comparison between the homeland and the mother. Um, like I, I was thinking about the way that like our brains, I'm just thinking of like on a linguistic level or something. Like there's a way that our brains like layer things on top of each other and somehow like the two concepts are layered like deep in the psyche or something somehow, or they're like the same thing, even though they're totally like one's an abstract concept and one's an actual person. And yet still (laughs) there's this like, where they merge kind of like the languages merge too, you know, into the same focal point or something. So I don't know. What is it that you think about that? Like what, what is it about the, the two? Right. Right. It's, um, 
you know, there's there's just so many things, <laughs> you know, um, and there's things that I have I don't I haven't talked about yet. So who knows how I'll verbalize mm-hmm. it? But uh, some of the things is like comparing fatherland to motherland and the context of those. Um, the other one is just there's so much of me coming as a mother, so I'm very attached to that side. Um, and then when you hear land, like when I when I look at motherland like that, I I think of land as just like dirt as well, where mm-hmm. you plant things, <laughs> you know. Um, and then there's boundaries. So all these things are playing all the time as I was you know working on this and um and I had different working titles uh this one came uh when I was writing another poem um and then I was like no this is it 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 sort of lots of things gravitate around it and connect it um in different ways but I think about all of that um and yes there's some sort of like primal uh <laughs> home <laughs> yeah I, I was thinking about the way that like in a disney movie you know that mo- or not even just disney but just the mythological movies but i see them through disney because i have young kids yeah, too yeah. and yeah. um but it's always orphaned children and it's always the mother who dies because the mother is like the worst thing like the worst place you could be is not having a mother and so there's something about like a homeland too that's the same way like losing a homeland would be like losing a mother or something and so being an immigrant is like losing a mother in that way and negotiating the world outside of the mother which is like the you know there's just some deep deep thing there it feels like i love i love your disney thing bringing (laughs) because that's the way to displace that character right that's how you ultimately displace them um yes i think i think there's there's that um losing a mother losing a home uh um and like some sort of craving (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. uh, for something that is maybe not there um but at the same time becoming a mother so that's why it's the two together to me is so interesting so then you become that thing that by the merging of the two you become Mm -hmm. the thing that you create it's very like (laughs) i don't know interesting so you know there's this interesting layer uh higher level right uh and then when it's from my experience, right, like motherhood and immigration were big shifts in my life because because I came as an adult, right? I had a whole like personality and identity, mm-hmm. you know. So so I'm like, oh, I like am something different now. And the same with motherhood, right? Like uh, there's a very significant changes as an adult. They're not just they are very practical and also go very beyond that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Did you um did you feel like you could like reinvent yourself when you moved? I, I always think about my brother. Um, we we moved to, like one side of the county to the other, and so when when he was like seven maybe or so. And I just, he shifted his, per- he became a totally different person. Like he was like, I, you know, I want to be somebody like this. And then he became like that instead of the kid he was. And um, did, did you, did you have that kind of feeling of like freedom to be whoever you wanted to be or something like that? Was that part of it? I love that story, by the way, for some fiction. <laughs> it's really cool uh, to try it out. I think for me, it's, um, so because, um, you know, I moved to Australia for a bit before I came here when I was 18. Um, and I think 
that's a time then you're shifting anyways, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and then I came here after some years there, but I was like, you know, early 20s. So I think it is a time when you're doing that anyway, mm-hmm. you know? So I think I, I don't know how I would have done it then, but I think it would have happened anyway. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's some, some, um, recontextualizing you know <laughs> and um and i also feel uh, you know the the your bases are different you know mm-hmm. uh uh things you take for granted are different so i think it's it's uh there's a mutual reinvention coming from me but also from just the external world <laughs> and my experience um but I, you know, I think I, I was just moving around a lot, you know. So, um, so yes, I was reinventing myself, but I think in a natural way for that mm-hmm. age. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Um, so I should say, if anybody has any questions for Ananda, I, I monitor the chat windows on both Facebook and YouTube, but not Twitter. So find Facebook and YouTube and leave a comment there if you'd like to, to pass along a question. Uh, let's hear the next poem, which I think is um, meet or, or, or me at. <laughs> there you go. So this one is also, I think, I feel like a royal line, and this one they're very, um, they 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 talk to each other uh, because it has this lineage and this uh, an- ancestry on it. But this one again, it's a little harder to, uh, it's less successful. So meet, which is me yet, <laughs> um, in the red light of late afternoon i stand clean and naked in the post shower fog with a bleary reflection of this body of mine of yours and i want to call the conference of my face summon us from this body of mine of yours but i don't know how to sift through the indices of pronouns in our languages i want you to confess twisting the proteins of your mouths masked in the muscles in my cheeks as I wipe wet my hands wrinkled with condensation and stare at this face of yours, of mine, asking what have you done to us? What have we done to you? Can I claim you as you did one another? My voice echoes and I get closer to the cleared path, fogging again, cold silver surface still open, my mouth and exhale exhale as we hide in this meat of me, the soft present skin. Yeah, that was meat uh, from um, from uh, motherland, and and that's another one of those just like playfulness is in there. You know, this hide it hide in this meat of me, and that with a me in the meat. Um, that's just the kind of stuff that, that the poems are just rich with that kind of thing. And it's interesting because, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure what to call it. Like it's illusion, but it's like additional layering instead of like, like if you look at like poems that rely on like Greek myths, like if you're reading um, like, like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland or whatever, and you don't know what he's talking about, you can't understand the poem. But but for years, they're more like those Easter eggs, like in a video game or movie or something, where it's like <laughs> an additional layer of fun, if you notice. But if not, the whole poem is still there. So so what do you think about, about that, about um, like how much your readers are getting out? Like, do you mind that they're m- maybe missing things? Like, I'm sure there are a thousand things in this book, you know, because I've, I've noticed a lot <laughs> of things. So I'm sure there's a thousand things I didn't notice. 
Um, do you do you what? How do you think about that? About the readers missing out a lot of the things that you're playing with. I love I I love uh, thinking that there are different things for different people, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I enjoy that. Uh, I do like I want people. Ideally, people have a good time and get something, <laughs> you know, there's something there for them. That's the best. But it's totally fine. I really enjoy that, that some people get this part and some people get this part and this part is missed. And maybe some other part is missed like consciously, but it activates something back there mm-hmm. and it colors the reading, you know. So I love that. And I think it's uh, connected to to. Uh, the the Portuguese thing as well. It's it's like um, I enjoy that. I I really think that uh, it's it's fun to get this experience that people experience the world in different ways in a positive way because mm-hmm. it turns out, you know, sometimes that 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 is not very helpful. <laughs> but uh, but I think if people can see that. We not, don't all see the same thing at all times because we have very different backgrounds and experiences. I enjoy that. I think it's it's fun. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when I hear somebody um, reading it in a different way or missing it, but they got some other thing. I think I really enjoy that. I think it's fun. <laughs> so it's totally fine if people miss like half of the things. It's it's great. <laughs> yeah. um, so another thing that that that. I mean, all the poems um, have this sort of freedom of um, of like punctuation. I guess you could just say that that there's no periods. I don't think in the whole book there are commas um, and they're capitals. But but it, there's this free flowing nature. And there's some lines that even like within the line. Um, I'm trying to find the one that was in that poem. But um, yeah, what have you done to us? What have we done to you? Can I claim you? Um, so and that 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 shift you know, there would be some punctuation there, but there's not. So there's this like freedom flowing through where you like trust the reader to be able to follow where you're going with a sentence and let it be these like images laid out one by one or something. Um, is there a reason you chose, you choose to write that way? Cause I think looking back, I think, um, I mean, all the poems of yours I'm familiar with do have that style um, and, you know, to various <laughs> diff- levels of play on that level, but, but it's something that they have in common. So what are you thinking with that? I love that question. So I think it's, um, yes, I, I very much don't like having the punctuation. I think it uh, allows me to do a lot of that play and reconstruction of the syntax. So once I start putting the punctuation, it closes a lot of things that I want to echo, um, you know. And um, uh, for example, just just as an example I'm seeing here, uh, so cold silver surface still open. So it sounds like the surface is open because there's that uh, gap in the mirror or something, you know, uh, but it's open my mouth. Uh, if I start putting uh, commas, people expect the ending to be there when it's the ending. So it doesn't allow that meaning to be constructed or activated or lightly activated, mm-hmm. you know, um, so, so I think uh, because I enjoy so much playing with the syntax and um, and having echoes or possible meanings or shades in there, the punctuation just doesn't do it for me, <laughs> you know. Um, and I know sometimes it's hard, but I think it's worth it. And that works for me as a writer, too. A lot of these things, uh, these layers or references, 
they come because I leave it open and I can keep investigating. If I put the punctuation, I close a lot of doors. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to hear you describe it that way because now that you mention it, it does feel it, it, it's almost like um you know like paths like like seeing into the multiverse or whatever like a <laughs> you know that the poems could be like Schrodinger's cat where it's like alive or like you don't know where it's going to turn, which leaves the door open to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's cool. Um, let's see, well, let's hear another poem. I want to make sure we get through a good number. And we're only halfway through the poems, but uh, but more than yeah, halfway through the, totally the conversation. So let's do more poems. <laughs> let me know. Let me know when it's um the last one because yeah, I'll, I definitely will. I'll yeah. read the uh, yeah, read a poet's respond. All right, so I think the next one. I lost my list. <laughs> uh, PB and J. Yeah. PB and J. PB and J. As a foreigner, I was against it by default, but later. As a mother, I was to make sandwiches. I turned away from my American child to hide a grimace as the knife slid on the oily surface, extracting a hanging grub, the mustard of dusty old mid-century velvet couches. I nagged my husband for separate utensils, fear of contamination. Then one day I was stranded, starving under a sleeping child, the sandwich still under his chubby fingers, bitten only once, about to fall. I moved my free arm, closed my eyes as, survivor, as a survivor on TV, brought it to my lips and bit it. Sweet swirls swimming in fat, thick, creamy fat, Fromage de mot, unpasteurized, beautiful body of butter. As I prepared to bite again, more than in that citizenship swearing ceremony earlier that month, I felt as an American. That was PB and J um, from Motherland, of course. And uh, um, so you write um, fiction as well as poetry, and you said you started out like you got into poetry through fiction just because lines were emerging and you didn't want to sort of clutter around them or something. Um, but but so why um, why this book in poetry and not fiction? And, um, and and how do you like compartmentalize the two as, as a writer? Like how do you know like oh I'm going to write a you know a story here versus a poem? Like do you do you plan out ahead of time or do you just journal and then it goes one way or the other? Um, and, and what are the difference between the two for you is how, in how you conceive of it? Right. So, um, so, you know, in the very beginning of like my poetry life, uh, I, I got them confused, but now I think it, it feels very different and it's a very, um, not deliberate process. It kind of just happens, but I tend to like this book when it's things that are like sort of close to my experience in a direct way, um, poetry seems to be better, especially if it's complicated stuff, <laughs> you know, um, or if it, if it, if it's many things at once. And, and I think, uh, it's like punctuation, right? <laughs> Fiction is a bit more closed. Um, and you have to make things very explicit, which makes it more closed. Um, so for this book, um, I wanted to talk about this very sort of significant 
parenting moments or whatever, but also this very big topics of history or um, the tension that was happening of immigration. And I wanted them to be a part of the same thing. And I wanted it not to be a sort of reductive approach. Uh, so I think those things that we were talking about, that openness of poetry, of having the multiverse, <laughs> and, you know, like being able to use the space and the sparseness of poetry to allow it to connect to all these things hmm. without you having to say everything. I think it would have been a nightmare to say these things like in a prose way, <laughs> you know, because um, I think you, you have to close it in and be a little bit more limited, uh, you know. So I think fiction is, is great when I have more of a, a story, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, um, and I don't want to touch all these things at the same time. Um, so it tends to be, even if it's something I experience part of a story in fiction, uh, it tends to be a, a little bit more limited in scope uh, for that story, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it feels very different. There are times that I played just for fun, like I would write a poem and then uh, I think the thing that I was talking about in the origins of my poetry life, uh, you know, and I, I sort of inserted parts of the poem in the story just to see. And sometimes it worked out. Uh, but mostly they're very different. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, to me, it always feels like it has something to do with like the the actual like place that it occupies. Like like poetry feels a lot more bodily. And then, and right. then, and then prose is like more in your mind or something. So it's like, yeah. you, you know, you're like taking away, taken away to a scene when you're, you're writing, you know, fiction or something. And then, and, and then, and then stuff that's like nonfiction is even more like that. Cause it's like an abstract scene right. even. So it's even more right. in your mind. And then in the poetry, it's like, you're even more in your body than you normally are or something while you're, yeah, yeah. you're doing the poetry. So I don't know. That's how I always yeah. think of it. But the openness and closeness is is part of it too, for sure. It's just really interesting to, yeah. that we have these like different styles, you know, that they're these own, like not only their own like forms of art, but their own like worlds and like little industries, you know? And so it's even yeah. unusual that somebody, you know, does both at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's um, I love the body thing. That sounds very, like it feels really right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and for me, you know, I think there's people out there who do great things where they, their poetry and their prose is a little closer. Like, you know, they write prose poems and flash fiction, maybe, you know. Uh, but for me, I like write very long short stories that have way too many words in them and very dense, you know, like very... Um, I don't know. I always have to like go and chop them up a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's a very different mode. And I think also the thing of making decisions, like in fiction, sometimes I make decisions. I'm like, okay, this is going to happen. Uh, much less so in poetry. Poetry, I'm sort of letting it happen in the body, or, you know. Uh, in fiction, I'm, I, I write. I write a lot without knowing where I'm going. But many times in a story, I'm like, okay, something like this has to happen now. Let me make it happen. You know, mm -hmm. that doesn't happen as much in, in poetry for me. <laughs> well, let's mm -hmm. hear the next poem. Um, photograph of water as a mass now. Perfect. Photograph of water as a mass now. 
Learning to expose a photograph leads to waterfalls. The effect of the shutter speed easily detectable. Slow it down for the camera's translation of motion into static, liquid to silk to vapor. Dragging the shutter gives the water about to reach the rock and the water on top of it and the water just plunged over, time to come together into a single frame. Outside the photograph, water keeps coming down, dark floating on top of more of itself, white foam as it splashes, gelatinous and transparent on top of flat rock, slithering down paths carved by its antecedents, roaring as it beats against boulders. And it falls, and it keeps falling when I place a cap over my lens, walk down the mountain, put a kettle to boil, and drink as I look at the photographs on my screen, and it keeps falling as I fall asleep. There's a photograph of water as a mass noun. And that's a good segue to another thing I wanted to ask about, which is that you're a photographer too. And um, yeah. so and so, do you, um, and that, that poem makes it seem like you do, you work with a film too. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I worked like, I did a little bit of film mm -hmm. just like, as an experimental thing, but I do a lot of digital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. what is it that, that draws you to photography in particular? Um, you, you know, what is it? Is it something similar that what draws you to poetry? I think it's very similar. And photography came uh, to me before everything. Um, uh, people knew I did photography much before they knew I wrote anything. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think it, there's... there's um, maybe some sort of a continuum with photography poetry and fiction not it doesn't work for everything <laughs> but you know with the nonverbal right like so so a photograph is, is is sort of a like one frame and there it's saying and moving a lot of things but it's it's not using words and i think uh, poetry uses nonverbal things like the line break, for example, right? So the line break can do a lot of stuff, but it's not a word or punctuation or anything. <laughs> um, so I think there's something in common there with, you know, you, you can, you can paraphrase and explain a photograph or a poem, but those paraphrases and explanations, not the experience of the poem itself. So I think there's, there's something that there's sense seems very similar to me um yes and i think um there's a sensibility that is similar uh so yes i think there's 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 something there with the poetry that is not so much with the prose <laughs> you know well i think we have time for like two more poems with like a little bit more discussion in the middle so how about the second to last one perfect let me do what was it mother tongue <laughs> mother tongue yeah Margaret Mother Tongue. All right. So this this uh this poem plays with a uh, inversion of the dates in, in American dates, <laughs> you know. Um and and I wrote it at November wait, November ninth, twenty sixteen. So that was like right at the election results. Um Mother Tongue. To deal with American dates, my strategy was to tell myself to do the opposite of what I thought I should do. This used to work, but now I no longer remember 
what I felt so strongly about. So I'm caught not knowing for certain the day I was born, switching my birthday from June to August, one of two months when the temperature is right, the other one being July, when I was once certain my mother was born. But now I am not sure of its other date. I am more sure of its other date, though I still don't know if the proper way to say it is July 4th or the 4th of July. My son was born in September 2011, and when the well visit nurses, nurses, I always have to stop myself from saying 9-11. My son does not in any other way remind me of 9-11. That day sad, but seen from afar, on a screen didn't belong to us then. The two of us then won, not in America, not a person yet, neither that for those who count as a person, a person not born here, nor for those who count as a per- as person, something not born. But now we can es- escape its imprint. The proximity of those digits, even if out of order or in the correct order, I can't tell anymore. My son doesn't know yet how dates work. He barely understands the days of the week. I try to make him say them in Portuguese like I do, with all the words I can still remember, hoping for gains by attrition. But today, because I didn't know what to say, but still, but still wanted him to understand me, because I was afraid for him speaking anything other than the unofficial, official language of this land, which is not my land, despite the claims it makes in song, I gave in and spoke to him in my broken version of his language. Um, that was Mother Tongue, a very central poem to uh, Motherland. And sorry for everybody at home, the f- call dropped for a few seconds. So you missed a few lines. I'm sorry about that. But uh, if it happens again, we'll just switch to audio um, for, for a little bit. But I think <laughs> it's fine. It's weird. I don't know what happened. But um, mm-hmm. um, anyway, so one thing I'm always curious about it's just what the state of poetry is in other countries. So since you grew up in Brazil, and I think mm-hmm. you've translated some Brazilian poets, right? Um, so, so what is it like? Because I feel like we're in this, you're always in a bubble wherever you are. And like, yeah. you think of it <laughs> like, like other places are like you are. But, but poetry is such, so institutionalized here. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like in Brazil? Like, like what, how much is taught in schools? Like how many poets are there publishing books? Are there a lot of presses? Are there like readings? And and what is it like there as you were growing up? Like, how much exposure did you have? And, and how is it different here? Like, what the comparison between the two, how we treat poetry is what I'm curious about. Right. So I'm, I'm going to have more things that I, I can talk about my experience growing up and mm-hmm. some glimpses of now. Because now a lot of times I learn from, like, I don't know, people here who are not, like, American friends, you know, because I'm here. Um and what happens too is is the people I know there, they're not writers or po- you know like it's like my family. Nobody knows what the scene is there. So I learned through like people here that I met here. <laughs> um, but growing up, um, there were everybody sort of learned very sort of classic poems. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was seen as important and something. Um, Important and like uh, respected, <laughs> you know. Um, but it, you know, we mostly learned 
um, a couple of contemporary people, uh, a lot of sort of classic people. We we also learned uh, from back, like in the very beginning of Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, as Brazil. Um, but also we had exposure to these uh, concrete poets and uh, um, modern art week. Uh, so we also had some exposures like from the 20s to the 60s. And, and there were a lot of very fun poems, mm-hmm. uh, 60s, 70s. <laughs> so so we, we there was a lot of sort of concrete poems and poems that had shapes, but, but very, I think, clever ones. They were not like silly, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and we also had a lot of, um, you know, there's there, there's one that is drink Coca Cola written in different fonts and missing different oh, yeah. bits. Mm-hmm. So you know we we got in exposure to a lot of things that were kind of like also interesting and intriguing and fun, mm-hmm. uh, but not so much like super contemporary people. You know, it wasn't so open. And maybe it was similar here. I don't know. Um, but now I feel like uh, I think. Um, Social media and, and YouTube in Brazil is a whole different world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like here on steroids or something. <laughs> it's like a lot happening. Uh-huh. Um, so I feel like uh, like like here there's, there's a, sort of an opening of people doing their own thing and small things. What I do feel as a writer, and I think um, that's just my impression, but like um, it's a little bit the contemporary scene is less professionalized than here. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- for example, um, you know, here, if I have non-writer friends, they may not know the difference between self-published, small press, and big press. Like, I may know people here, but they're not writers. There, I know writers who don't know the difference, uh-huh. you know. Um, and, and people self-publish a bunch, and there's not as much of a stigma you know so i think i think it's um because there's not that many you know of course there are people doing presses and good stuff but because it's a little less professionalized i think people just publish their their book arts poem and take it to the fair and and people are happy with that you know Mm -hmm. um so i feel i feel there's a little bit more a little less of the the structure there is a structure, but you know, there's a lot of of work being done outside of the structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a question that goes along with this uh, from Dick Westheimer, who asks, um, "Is Eduardo Galliano one of the ones who was taught?" Um, in quotes, um, his works um, are ra- so radical, at least to my ears. Right. I, I. So it's hard for me to think if I, I was, taught, but I do think so. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think you know what it would be. It would be like we would be taught like one poem or two, you know? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, but yes, I think that's, that's some of the cool, like very interesting stuff that came through as well. Well, it yeah. sounds like, I mean, that sounds better than my experience. You know, in my class, <laughs> you know, growing up, we just read Frost and, you know, that's, <laughs> and, you know, and Shakespeare and stuff, but we never got past like the 1900s, I think. Um, yeah, I feel like there was some of that, but the the, the sort of, uh there was so much happened in brazil uh mm-hmm. you know there's like such a big thing in the 20s and then there was big stuff a very big modernist impulse coming like 
connecting the 20s and this i think they were it was just so strong that it sort of made it through but uh-huh. it was a lot of like very old poems yeah. as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> well um, um let's finish up on the last poem uh, that you wanted to read yeah. Yeah, so this poem was at uh, Rado Poets Respond, uh, and it was when there was a lot of rumors of ice activity, and some of the rumors were true, some were not. Uh, it was a lot, but it was very visible <laughs> at that time. Um, and it's called When They Come For Us on the Seven Train. Past the underground tracks, the railroad rises. Our eyes adjust to the sun over Jackson Heights. At the platform, the doors slide open and the winter comes in with the men in their dark uniforms. Silence, except for the pleas, stand clear of the closing doors. The weight of their boots sways the car and I raise my hand towards the pole. But one of the men grabs my wrist and I feel the cold of his black gloves against the grooves of my tendons. The cold crosses my skin. The cold mixes with my blood. The cold travels in my veins to my fingertips, to my elbow, and my other hand lets go of my son before the cold reaches him too. I say I'm an American citizen. The soft tissue in my mouth cracks with frost. I say it louder. I'm an American citizen and the frozen edges of the words scratch as they move through my throat. I shout, I'm an American citizen, and reflected on the men's visor, I see my face. I think of my son if they take me. I think of my son if they don't, as he watches me whisper, I'm an American citizen, while the others are taken by the men of ICE. That was when they come for us on the seven train, a poet respond poem from Motherland, and um, it, you do have a lot of poems that um, that relate to the news, which is kind of fun to see. You know, in the notes in the back, there are a lot of um, references to news stories, which is really cool. So I'm glad. You know, thanks for keeping that ball rolling with uh, the poet respond type style too. But just a powerful poem there, and just a wonderful collection. I we, I love this and and love talking to you. There weren't a lot of uh, comments or, or questions. I mean, but people were just loving the poems um, people are saying um, charming disarming and precise are the words that kept coming up in the chat uh, just everybody loves your work and, and so do i uh, thanks so much for being a guest tonight ananda it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again thank you so much and thank you everybody yep. good night <laughs> good night yes that was ananda lima with um her newest book motherland um which uh you can find of course from black lawrence press and if you'd like to find all of um, Ananda's books, you can go to her website, which is Anandalima. That's A-N-A-N-D-A-L-I-M-A, anandalima.com. So check out her website and pick up a copy of these books while you're here. The, the newest full-length book is Motherland, but then she has three chapbooks as well, which are all wonderful. Um, she came to read at the Rattle Reading Series back in 2008 or so when we published uh, her poem in issue 57. And she was great there, so it's great to see this book come come together, and uh, great to talk to her tonight. Now we're going to move on to open lines, and um, I'm going to put up the thing for how it works. So how open lines works is that you email your poem right now to open mic, that's openmic at rattle.com, then pick one or the other, either call in 
over the phone at 818-850-7727. And that is um, 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times and then hang up. And um, I will call you when it's your turn. That's how you get on the call list. The other option, if you'd like to be on video, the option is over Skype, and that's using Rattle Poetry, all one word. That's Rattle Poetry. Just type that in the search bar, send me a chat message that you'd like to share a poem, and I will call you back when it's your turn. That's how we do the open lines here. Now I'm going to stand up and stretch and get everything organized, and I will be right back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, it's nice to stand up. It's a long time to sit in one chair. Hope you stood up and stretched too. That's always good. Um, now the prompt for this week, uh, I forgot to mention, but the prompt was a simple one this week. It was to write an apology poem. And to be honest, I started writing a poem and then halfway through, I kind of got like one of those like distracted. It wasn't really connecting really, although it was going somewhere. And then I made the mistake of looking at Megan's and realized that it was a similar poem, um, both about the same grade level. I guess that's what happens when you're married. You start to look the same. Sorry, Megan. And you um, and you start writing about the same kind of stuff. So we both were writing about eighth grade, kind of a similar topic. And so I decided to mix it up and write a shorter, different style poem just to be different. Cause, because Megan's poem, of course, is going to be better than mine if I write something similar. And this was mine right here. This is... Um, an actual headline for an NPR article. Um, it was this summer. It was June like 15th this year. I just Googled how to apologize or something. And the, this article came, how to apologize like you really mean it, which I just thought was funny. And even funnier is that they changed it. So in the Google search results, that was a headline. But in the actual article, they they rethought that <laughs> and uh, and decided to call it something different. It was like um, how to apologize the right way is what they'd change it to. Uh, but that is an actual NPR headline. How to apologize like you really mean it. And here's the poem. How to apologize like you really mean it. It helps, of course, to really mean it. But if you merely need to seem it, then keep in mind that less is more. Leave all your butts tucked in their drawer. Be real. Don't primp and puff and preen it. Like an, an apology is like a door once closed. There's nothing in between it. It helps, of course, to really mean it. And that is my uh, my poem kind of making fun of that article, which I just thought it was funny. Those are all the advice that the article actually gave, too. And now Megan's poem about um, is Apology to My Fellow Preteen Nothing. And here this one is. Apology to My Fellow Preteen Nothing. When the popular boy aimed his straw at you, Lips sealed around it as if playing some unholy trumpet. The spitball clung to your cheek like a wet kiss, like snow too cold to melt. And I saw your shame, how it started in your ribs and rose up, a sad song you knew all the words to, but hoped you'd never have to sing. We knew what we were, you and I. Knew there was a rhythm to the eighth grade, and our steps were always a beat behind. I knew you expected this, because I did too. Knew that today it was you, and soon it would be me. And I didn't want to see the heat in my chest reflected in your cheeks. So I looked away as the other kids laughed. That low, ugly, gritty laugh, like the beat of a farm animal narrowly escaping slaughter. 
You were alone at that long table, and I could have sat beside you, picked that thing off your cheek like a ripe berry, and you told you I would walk with you through a storm of paper bullets. But I left you there, your face as crumpled as your brown lunch sack, your humiliation saving mine a seat. And that was Megan's poem. Um, that was uh, Apology to My Fellow Preteen Nothing. And you can see why I had to write a different poem because cause hers was going to be much better than mine. And now let's see what you have, though. We have, um, let's see, the open lines list. We have uh, Richard Westheimer. We have Nivy, Angela Gartner, Carolyn Codd, Mike Bales, Nilema Karkanis, and Philip Stern. So it's like the usual crowd. I think we're going to have plenty of time if you'd like to do more than one poem. We had a, what was that? There was a 909 number that just called, but it didn't show up. Let me see. That's strange, because usually they show up after they ring. So if, you, if you're at that 909 number that I saw that called just now, please call back, because for some reason it didn't save. Um, hmm. But anyway, let's go to... Um, let us go to, let's go to Philip Stern first. Good evening, Philip. You are live on the air. How are you doing tonight? Okay. Let me turn you off. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Wow. Call me first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I usually call you later, so I figured I'd I'd go mix it up. Um, so, uh, so what do you have that you'd like to share with us tonight? Okay. Um, I told uh, this story to my wife a number of times, but I could never get myself to write about it until this prompt. <laughs> I even put off put off writing it all week until this morning, but it would also maybe my first prose poem. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's called Apologies. Sometimes I still hear that ringing bell, my father summoning me from his bed unable to call loudly enough because of the esophageal cancer. I was his caregiver on weekends. One Sunday night, the bell woke me from an abyss of sleep, and irritated, I went to him. The feeding poured to his stomach looked okay. He stared at me, confused. He did not know why he rang the bell. I spoke sharply. Why did you wake me? Eyes down, he whispered. Sorry, sorry. Next day in the afternoon, his daily aide from cancer care called, telling me he was gone. Once in a while, in dreams and awake, the bell and my words to him come back to me, and in sorrow, my heart says, Dad, I'm sorry, sorry, so sorry. A very touching poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Phil. That was Apologies by Philip Stern. Thanks, Philip. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. You too. Bye. Yeah, it's Philip Stern with apologies, and I'm going to go in, in like reverse order of the call list tonight. And uh, next up, we'll do Nilema. Nilema Kirkanis, that is. And I should say too, if anybody wants to hear two poems, I think there's plenty of time for two if you have to. Hello. Hi, Nightlima. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you, Tim? I'm doing great. That was a fun night of poetry so far. I'm looking forward to the rest of the open line. So uh, what do you have that you would like to share? Okay, so I have a poem I wrote for your prompt. For the first time, I did the prompt. Oh, good. Um, And then I have a couple more sections from 
the poem I read last week, if there's time for that. Yeah, I was just saying, I think there's going to be plenty of time. So feel free to read two. Yeah, sure. Anybody wants to read two, as long as they're not super, super long, go ahead. So that's that sounds great. No. Great. Okay, so I'll start with the prompt one. Um, it's called, I finished it like very not long ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> so here it is. Okay. Chances. You're not sorry. You sang, you rang, you rang thin. No more apologism. In order to finally rise up again out of bugs and out of determined dust, ashes from glowing musts. You're not sorry anymore, no longer willowed by grilling shame, unapologetic for who you became. It is an engaging end, you said, and we agreed. We celebrated a purple sky, panoramic sending of you back to yourself. Apologia gone. Oh, I love that ending. Chances. Uh, thanks for sharing that one, Ilima. Oh, no problem. Thank you. It was good to it was good to do a prompt. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then this other poem, Photophobia, is um, a long section poem. Tell me again where it was published. Okay, so it was published for the um, Joy Kogawa House. That's right. Okay. In tandem with the archives, archives, and um, so in Toronto is where the archives are, and then the um, Joy Kogawa House is in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. I didn't say all that last week, so yeah, so they 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 collaborated and are publishing the work from our from the a workshop series that we did in the summer. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And so if anybody wants to hear the beginning of this, listen to last last week's episode. This is our first serial poem on the Rattlecast, so that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, and the, and the archives and Joy Cook House are just publishing the first part, so this is like kind of a debut of me even reading this. Oh, really cool. Um, or okay. sharing it much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, okay, go ahead. I have it ready. Okay. Photophobia. Uh, these are excerpts section seven and eight. Your eyes aren't cold, like her double cat's eye marbles. Your mood, however, is less intentional, more volatile, spin cycle, comet marble rolling to the wind, losing our best ones again to the virus. Quarantine days are not over for all of us. I believe in immunity and microbiology, even though I'm slowly bleeding to death and no one sees me. Eight. You said, I'm done with giving up on myself completely. I was glad to hear it. I hope you understand the lyrics of the song I sing, the one you like, then hate again. I'm sorry I am a complicated fairy, orchid berry. Once upon a temple reality, please meet me in the solar blue. I'll be happy, and maybe, just maybe, I'll be enough for you. Yeah, such an interesting poem. I, I, it's very intriguing seeing these sections of it. Um, thanks so much for sharing that, Nailima. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye now. Of course, that was Nailima Kirkanis with uh, Photophobia. And um, we had another, I think a first-time caller here, which is uh, a 615 number. Let's call up that, see who that is. Hello? Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air. Did you want to share a poem? Yeah, great. That's uh, Apologia for contributing to the big data police state. Yeah. Ah, cool. And so this is um, this is uh, Andrew Dillon. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, so glad. Uh, where are you calling from, Andrew? It's a first-time caller, which is always fun. 
Yeah, so I live in Nashville, but I'm actually in Louisville. I'm I'm working on a writing project right now, and I'm trying to uh, kind of wrap. It's like a manuscript, uh, but I'm I'm building it as a website. So it's uh, you know I made it as complicated on myself as as I could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. So is it like a hypertext kind of thing where the we move through different sections of it at different like a different I don't know rates or something. I, I, I'm curious about that. What 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 would it be like on a website? Yeah, so it's built like similar to a website. So I use a platform called Jekyll, which mm -hmm. is a static site generator. And professionally, I'm a technical writer, so I I was familiar with this sort of platform. Um, and there's a popular tech writer named Tom Johnson who made a theme available. So basically, I just downloaded his theme, and I was able to plug in my like my poems and kind of like my vision. So it's, it's like, I'm calling it a book site, hmm. but yeah, it, it, yeah. it navigates like a website and it, ha but it, you know, it's, there's media and there's like links to related poems. And um, so it's, yeah, it's not like a PDF. It, it It's, it's more freely navigable than that, like, that's a, really interesting. Like you'd think after, you know, I don't know how long the internet's been around 25, 30 years, you'd think that more people would do stuff like that and experiment with it. But um but we kind of like the old ways of doing things, I guess, don't we? <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, it, it's been it's been a fun project, but it's taken me a long time because I've never built a website before. And uh, but it's it's really coming together, and it's it's honestly almost done, and I'm I'm really happy. Well, very cool. Well, let's see. This is apologia for contributing to the big data police state. And is there anything else you want to say about the poem before you, you um, start reading it? Sure. It's um, so I wasn't here last week so i saw the prompt was an apology poem so i sent in an apologia but i guess it's i guess that's sort of in the opposite of an apology it's really a defense of something or an explanation so um so this poem i wrote this poem i i downloaded like my twitter account data because uh -huh. i just wanted to see like what do they know about you and it was you know it, it is a big problem like how much websites can collect how much information they can collect from you but I thought it was very funny, like how far off they were. So that's where this poem came <laughs> that's from. Just, I'm gonna have to, I have to do that for, because um, I'm noticing, um, you know, on Rattle's Twitter, which is the only time I use Twitter, it's just a post Rattle, but the news feed on the side is like so radically left leaning that um, I, 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 and I, I was, I was thinking that like Twitter is just that way, um, but then I, re I realized recently just like this week I was thinking about this, that it's only because poets are just tend to be like liberal Democrats, you know? And so it thinks like I don't associate with anybody else. <laughs> and so it gives me the most, you know, left-leaning news possible. But I bet it, I bet it's all in this data stuff, actually. But um, anyway, that's interesting. So I'm going to have to look at that up. <laughs> yeah, that's the data they're selling about you to like <laughs> other people. <laughs> yeah, well, Rattle's going to buy a whole lot of, uh, a lot of stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but um, I hope you have a good profile. But anyway, Apologia for contributing to the Big Data Police State. Go ahead whenever you're ready. I thought I could soften my body's decay with Castile soap, apple cider vinegar, coconut oil. Despite my best efforts, winter still arrives to chip away at me. My dust settles on every surface, later gets stuck in my vacuum filter, which I never empty. Other filters I'm caught up in include dishwasher, kitchen sink, debt industrial complex, Twitter cookies, 
through which I have been reliably labeled as between 13 and 54 years of age, German-speaking, and interested in the following selected items. Ballet, Cats 2019, College Football, College Football, College Game Day, College Game Day, College Football, Dan Bongino, Entertainment, Entertainment Franchises, Entertainment Industry, Entertainment News, Famous Comedians, Hillary Clinton, Iowa, Jonathan Swan, Knitting, La Reine de Neige, translated from the German, Live College Football, Nathan Peterman, oh, is Jack Dorsey a fucking Patriots fan? New York Fashion Week, Penny Hardaway, Rita Ora, Smoothies, Star Trek Lower Decks, the most poetic Star Trek title, Streets of Rage, did Janet Jackson contribute to this OST? Weather, weather, all of which I definitely have heard of, consumed, and enjoy. Though they only listed Marishka Hargitay, Marishka Hargitay, once. Axiom can have those for free if they read my book or choose to pay for them again to sell to other data brokers and startups who will sell to Twitter and back to Axiom, which I understand is a viable and profitable business model. The older I get, the more I am reflected. Or do I mean contained? Just when I was worried about self-actualization, I find my potential collected and parsed in a JSON file. My risk to a healthcare provider factored. I am consumable. I can be purchased by literally any bidder with the rest of America's vibrant 13 to 54 demo. I am here and everywhere else too, and I am an asset. That was really good. That was really interesting and funny, that list. Man, that was, <laughs> that was interesting stuff. And I, I, So I take it that, that you're not like a fan of ballet and college football? <laughs> well, I am. I do like college football, uh, but I've never, like, I don't know some of those, like some of those names I had to look up. Yeah. Like Dan Bongino, who is like a conservative <laughs> radio host. I'm like, how could they possibly associate me with, with him? I have no idea. Yeah, and Nathan Peterman is the I mean is a Bills fan in football. I know this. He is the 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 worst quarterback in NFL history literally. He threw like three interceptions in like out of his first like six passes and then never played again. Um yes. so how does that get on there? That is bizarre. But that, that was a funny and well, and interesting poem too. Thank you. Well, I am from Buffalo. I am a Bills fan, so that one was that one was on. I don't know why Nathan Peterman specifically, but <laughs> that's funny. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was really interesting. Thank you very much. Yeah, I hope you can call in again soon. I will. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay. So that was uh, um, let me get the name. Of it. Andrew P. Dillon. Let me put Andrew in our contact list. We have another first time caller in a nine one seven that I'll call next. Let's put Andrew in the phone book. Oops. <laughs> I, put, I put Nathan Peterman in the phone book. Hang on. There's Andrew. Andrew P. Dillon. Now let's try the uh, the other first time caller here. This is a 917 number. This must be the person who wasn't showing up, I think, that I said 909, but uh, it must be this 907, 917. Hey, Tim. Hey, yeah, you are live on the air. Who am I talking to? This is Pam Wax. Hey, Pam. Yeah, I think, do I hear myself in the background maybe? Mute that so you don't get confused. That's a good idea. Okay. But this is my second time calling. Ah, okay. So I, maybe I should definitely put you in the phone book then. 
Um, so what do you have that you wanted to share with us tonight? And where are you calling from, too? Because I don't remember. I am calling from the Northern Berkshires. Ah, very Adam's nice. Massachusetts. Yeah. And so, so what is this uh, poem, A Broken Sestina, that you wanted to share? Yeah, so I just got on late. I was not here for a few weeks and uh, have a lot of poems about forgiveness, atonement, apology, mm-hmm. and uh, had a choice of which one to read that fits the theme, and I decided to choose A Broken Sestina. Okay, well, I have it up whenever you're ready. Go ahead. Okay. If you still feel dirty when all the sorry is said and done and no amount of talking to God or flagellation from self or other will lure your brother back from that bridge he jumped after his last call to you, please explain why the red leaves above his grave sing, brother, brother, why it is that pre-dawn the bridge itself moans, resenting those Saturday a.m. drivers who did not phone the cops, leaving everyone else who knew him to atone and intone. I had no idea, didn't know. Sorry for your loss. They tell you what you know. He was a great guy, left a legacy of good deeds and loving attention. I remember when, act of kindness recounted, and I'll be praying for you. If you need anything, phone any time, but not after 10 or when they are avoiding you, or playing bridge, or hooky, or playing it safe. You go most mornings to pray for him, yourself, his spouse, and for the kids most of all. The same prayers every day, as you turn the leaves of the book. The opening blessings bridge forgiveness to repentance backwards, it seems, confounding the logic of your, his regrets, and his, your sorries for not being there, for not picking up when he phoned. The message he left, you saved it, though you haven't listened since, says, I'm on the bridge to nowhere. I love you. You don't have to pray. And sorry for going on about something you'd forgiven long ago. Oh, that's just a heartbreaking poem. Um, thanks so much for sharing that. Really well written, and, and the Sestina form comes through so strong, too. Thanks, Pamela, for sharing that. Thanks, Tim. That was Pamela Wax with a, a broken Sestina. And um, let's go to... Yeah, so, okay, so a lot of people are calling in now. Let me remind you one more time that uh, it's 818-850-7727 are the phone numbers. And uh, Rattle Poetry over Skype if you'd like to be on video. Let's see, let's go to uh, Mohammed Al-Badiwi. Hello. Hey, Mohammed, great to see you. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's been a while. Great to see you too. How's your day? It's been great. A lot of fun poems and um, interesting, uh, interesting discussion. So uh, what do you have that you wanted to share with us? I, you always have good stuff. So what, what is it? Oh, thanks. I've got two poems, uh, very short, one short and one medium length. Um, I send them to you, Cost of a Mistaken Text and For Comfort. Yep, I have them right here. Wonderful. So I did not write this for the prompt, but it is apology related. And the background to this one is that um, someone sent an embarrassing text on a WhatsApp group. And um, well, the next (laughs) follows. I thought it was quite humorous uh, what happened. So I wrote about it. Sounds good. Let's go. Let's go for it. Uh, Great. Cost of a mistaken text. Sorry, wrong group, he said, as he stepped on a pebble. 
bumped into a pole, stumbled down a flight of stairs, crashed onto an oncoming train, fell down a quiet volcano, boiled away into space, and then just walked it off. <laughs> That's great. I like that a lot. There's <laughs> a cost of a mistaken text. And then, uh, and then this other one, uh, For Comfort. Is there anything you want yep, to say about that? For Comfort. No, not much. Just um, reflections on uh, a day. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, go ahead whenever you're ready then. Sure. For Comfort. Let's pretend that this matters. My words, yours, an exercise in self-obsession, self-importance, in a universe that does not care or see who walks upon this speck of dust, but we, slaves to economy, pretend that this matters, that this cosmos is in our name, a desperate people on a falling rock. If a planet dies in space, does it make a sound? Maybe, but still we pretend that someone will save us from ourselves as we wrap a rope around our own necks. For comfort, of course. Suffocation is liberation, said the elders, liberating me from my sanity. The dirt beneath me does not care as we, you, me, and us pretend that this matters. Ah, great, important poem, For Comfort, uh, from Mohammed Al-Badiwi. And I wanted to ask, uh, what is mm -hmm. this website, Am Amonology? Oh, um, that's just my, my personal blog. Interesting. Uh, my, what, what does that mean? I'm curious about Ammon. I'm, I'm from Egypt. Uh-huh. And Amun is an ancient Egyptian name. So a lot of my friends call me by the nickname Amun. Ah, okay, very cool. So Amunology is sort of my social media handle on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And so I thought website as well. Gotcha. That's very cool. Well, everybody should go visit that too. Uh, that was uh, Mohammed Abadibi. Thanks so much for being a guest again. Oh, thanks a lot, Tim. Yep. Nice to see you. Yep, nice to see you too. Care. Bye. Bye. Okay. And next we are going to go to... Julian Matthews. Well, I'm mean, moving down the list. So the Julian Matthews and Carolyn Codd, Angela Gartner, um, and Dick Westheimer is who I have uh, lined up right now. And then I have some um, poems to read and play, too. Let me download this. This is Lauren Dia, and she sent an audio file to play her. Maybe I'll do that, and then I'll call up um, whoever I said was next, Julian Matthews. And let's see if I can, if I can get this going. I'm just going to play. There, okay. So this is, uh, so Lauren Dia, and uh, Lauren says, Hi, I just wanted to share my poem for this week's writing prompt. Um, I have the written text attached, but it's more of a spoken word piece. So I'm also attaching an audio recording. And um, by the way, my poem is in response to the events of January 6th, 2021. So here is uh, Sorry I Can't Unsee by Lauren Dia. Let me make sure I get this all set up. I think I did a good job this time. We'll see. Sorry I Can't Unsee Spilling Blood. A phoenix falling, broken spirit, circle stretches, the rotunda lies. No ellipse changes any some distances of two points of view. In appalling silence whispers, not wails, how democracy cries. Under the dome, death grip, domestic, boots beating, hearts stop, break, Worshipping flags, weaving, chanting, majestic, scaling, infancy, busted, breach, birth, bigotry, reborn in idolatry, awake. Red hats, brown shirts leave us dying in a night of broken glass, reflected, resurrected, a new day of terror and blood, outpouring of hatred, once seemed caught in a comatose coop. Now resuscitated, reviving, penalty for treason doesn't hold water if we issue no warrants, freedoms drowning in mud. 
And I'm sorry, but is this how we die? A slow death, a death of doing nothing death, a public death in a mighty fortress. But death is ignorance. Death is looking murder in the mug and staying still blind. Death is one man beating another to death with his own drum. Sticks and stones do more than break bones as if their breaking wasn't bad enough. And words are spoken swords. And why do we shield words' wounds, claiming words never hurt? Words untomb anger and give voice to words inciting violence and creating vengeance. Vengeance is a double-sided sword cutting through an argument by killing both sides. But if words don't hurt, why did Lavinia lose her tongue so she couldn't testify? And if words don't hurt, why do we swear in court? And if words don't hurt, how can words possibly help? And I'm sorry, but if words can't help, then what's the point of an apology? And I'm muting my sorry, because I have to speak my words today to ensure tomorrow you can speak yours. Yeah, very interesting. That's Lauren Dia with Sorry I Can't Unsee. Really a well-read, good, I'm glad you sent an audio file because you've read that much better than I than I would have. And I love that looking murder in the mug. That's, a, that's my favorite line in the poem, but uh, good stuff, Lauren. Thanks for sharing that. And now let's go to uh, Julian Matthews, like I said. He's got an apology poem for us. Hey, Julian, how you doing today? You hear me? I can hear you. Yep, you're alive. I can't see you, though, if you wanted to click the camera button, but if not, that's okay, too. Keep clicking the button, but it doesn't work. Hmm. Well, let's just have audio then. Um, so your is apology to my anatomy. Is there anything you want to say about it? Uh, I quit drinking for 1,384 days ago, but who's counting? Oh, yeah, congratulations. That's great. <laughs> so uh, I just pulled this out because uh, you said apology poem and uh, tweaked it for today. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, let's go, go ahead with it. Apology to my anatomy. Whenever you're ready, go ahead. Apology to my anatomy. Dear kidney, where have you been? Dear spleen, why was I so mean? Dear brain, forgive me the hangover pain and all the gray cells I've slain. I feel your thoughtful disdain. I'm so, so sorry, dear heart. You kept on going, pulling beats from parts unknown finding arteries to bypass on your own, while I bitterly reaped what was sown. Dear liver, for all the pounding I delivered, there were days of joy, but also days I was out to destroy. Every drink made me sink, sunk, think, thunk, drunk. You are the reason I still live. I was a lifer. The wagon beckoned, but I kept falling off of it. The walls were talking, but this dead man's still walking. On the mend, no longer a pretender. On a poetic bender instead. Every turn, another reason to get inside this head before I return this body to sender. 
Hey, divine assembly of hearts, here are your parts. Only one owner. I knew it was just a loner. Still good for one more boner. No major accidents, some minor bumps and dents. Low mileage, high smiled aged. Newly retired, some air required. Comprehensive service history and in very good condition. Too well oiled maybe from all the late night libations. I know, I know my soul is unworthy of heaven, but it will never learn if you let it eternally burn. It would be a waste also in purgatory, seen too many insides of laboratories. Hey God, you bake the bread, but can't leave it unleavened. Let's cut a deal and call it even. Let's be more environmentally friendly and recycle my anatomy. Give it to another who will treat it with more dignity. Let's save this old soul for another roll of the dice. Give me one more life on this earth, please, to pay for this vice. By your grace, let me be redemption's ultimate plug and reincarnate me as a free refills, empty mug. That was great. Great rhymes thread through. Apologies to my Thank anatomy. Thanks, Julian. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Good night or good day. Now, Julian Matthews with Apology to My Anatomy. And um, let's keep moving along to Angela Gartner. And then and we have Richard Westheimer, too. A couple of poems to read as well from poets who couldn't be here but wanted to share a poem, too. Um, oh, and I forgot about this. Jason Lofters. Um, he has a, a move. I have to figure out how to play or what to do with this. And I forgot from last week. So we'll postpone it. I start it. I'll postpone it for next week again. Because I don't know. I'm, i got to figure out if there's copyright issues going on with that poem. But let's go to Angela. Hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Good. Let me turn you off. All okay. right. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, so what okay. is it? Oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So what is it that you wanted to share tonight, Angela? Um, I wanted to share two poems. I didn't do the prompt poem, but I, I, um, one, one of them was the poem that I submitted from Poets Respond this week, and then the other one was I submitted last week. But I sent you an email to kind of put it all in one document to make it easier for you. Yep, I have that right here, Rambles of the Sleep Deprived, and then another poem too. Yeah. So basically rambles of the sleep deprived is there was a study that came out that the best time to sleep is between 10 and ten fifty nine, and i never ever go to sleep between those times <laughs> at, at night or during the day <laughs> at, at, at night yeah i've never 10... i can't yeah i've never been asleep at that time either i don't think it, it, since i was like eight years old maybe <laughs> Well, and supposedly it's kind of like the best time for your health. And I mean, they did study it's best time for heart health to do that. Um, but for me, like I'm always going to bed like at one o'clock or after midnight. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's so funny because I was just thinking how, you know, how much poetry is kind of related to sleep, whether we're talking about our dreams in poetry or or even um you know, how we kind of go into, you know, sleep is such a, you know, we ramble like in our sleep. So uh -huh. <laughs> there's just so much, 
you know, and, and I think poetry is kind of like that, you know, we kind of go on and on and, and, um, we, it's, it's something too, because this poem was actually supposed to be, it's kind of like we have good intentions and then it always comes out different because this poem was supposed to be something different, but it ended up being a free verse. So, yeah, yeah. I always think of that, that how that, that place, your mind state where you're like between falling asleep and you're like daydreaming but you're not in control of what you're thinking about that, that a lot of times that seems like what poetry is doing like it's the same mechanism or something right and I think you mentioned this like you know months ago probably but you talked about it kind of being like an out-of-body experience and that's kind of how sleep is sometimes it feels yeah, so yeah well go ahead and read this rambles of the sleep deprived rambles of the sleep deprived it's 10 30 p.m and I want to go to bed I have to step on the balance beam of the room where I try not to fall over the piles of clothes on the floor. The room is lit in strings of blue and I slip on a finger skateboard. It's 11 p.m. and I'm rubbing my toe. My stacks of books are left unread. There's an emptiness in the wind. The door frame glows in the blinking lights from the caution sign outside. I pour a glass of wine and look out the window. It's 11.30 p.m and bucks are on the lawn. They gather at the tree to eat lichens, scratch their antlers on the trunk underneath the glimmering moon. I feel their freedom to roam in the road after they hear the approaching storm. It's 12 a.m. and the phone and the photos on my phone. I see lots of white teeth in my scroll, smiling, laughing at the quiet gems we found in the concrete city where there's broken buds and grass to walk and talk about our past. It's 1 a.m. and my head is pounding, staring at my wall. I toss and turn on the mattress, my eyes filled with glue. Oh, very interesting ending there, too. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Angela. Rambles of the Sleep Deprived. And then there's another poem, too, the uh, Five Million Confirmed. Yeah, this is just a short poem. Um, it's it's about the five million confirmed globally who died of COVID-19. And mm. I was just thinking of that um, last week. Um so that's um yeah it's quite a milestone yeah for sure um so that's that's pretty much what it i was just thinking about how all those especially with the holidays coming up um you know how much you know how much it affects everyone and how many people are lost mm -hmm. i mean that's a that's a lot uh, i mean it's 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 definitely a lot so yeah well go ahead i have it ready the five million confirmed. It's the sum of birthdays and family reunions with chocolate cakes that are half eaten. The long car rides with views of mountain snow caps where the goats go untroubled. Rising to a crumbled sheet and empty pillows. The au revoir, adio, sayonara, goodbye. Kiss on the lips before closing the door on the leaves from the windy autumn morning. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. The five million confirmed. It is one of those numbers. It's impossible to even get your mind around. Like I, like the biggest I can imagine. You know, I've been to a huge football stadium with like a hundred thousand people. So you can imagine, like you know, five million or five hundred thousand is like five football stadiums. But then when you get up to ten football, I mean, it just becomes um, uncountable, really. Well, yeah, and that's why you know that's the I couldn't fathom the number and. And you you can't really fathom how many people are missing these sort of things. Um, you know, I can't imagine, 
you know, losing my husband or, you know, someone close to me to COVID and, you know, and then having hearing it on the news every single day, I just, you know, I feel so bad for the families who lost loved ones and are um, going through this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, me too. Well, thanks for sharing that, Angela. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Have a great night, Tim. You too. Good night. Thanks. Don't stay up too late. (laughs) Oh, I will. (laughs) Bye. This is Angela Gartner with uh, two poems. And let's call up uh, Richard Westheimer next. Good evening, Richard. How are you doing today? Hey, Tim Green. I'm doing well. I don't see you. I just see your thumbnail. Yeah, I guess my phone, my... uh... I could switch, but you're the last caller, so I think we'll just yeah, have to, yeah, you'll have to bear it. You've seen don't me. Don't worry about it. I'll <laughs> just sort of stare, stare at this, uh, yeah. this thumbnail of a younger Tim Green. Yeah, I could switch to my other mic or other camera, but but we won't. Um, so so what is it that you wanted to share today? You said you have two poems. Yeah, I have a Poets Respond, and then I have a Prompt poem. Okay, which one do you, you want to do you, first? I'll do the Poets Respond Okay, and so uh, set this up. What what was this about? Yeah, so re- real quickly, it's sort of a confirmation that there's a huge reservoir. That the news story was that uh, white-tailed deer represent a huge reservoir of COVID, mm-hmm. asymptomatic COVID. It, it appears as though, and there's some sort of conversation among deer hunters about whether they need to change their practices. Yeah, I saw uh, that too. Which this, um, I don't know. It was. Uh there's a study that came out. I don't know if it's the same news or another study following it up, but there were some incredibly high percentage of um, the deer were infected in a survey, like way back early on, like in 2020, you know? Yeah. It was like, like a third of deer in like New York, maybe, or somewhere like that, that they sampled. Yeah, it's, which, yeah, it's um, now up to like 60, 70%. And uh, I think the fear is, is that there'll be, um, Variants that develop that then become, I think the word is zoonotic uh, when yeah, they zoonotic pass back. Transfer. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, the weird thing is like, how does a deer get the virus? <laughs> you know, like who is going, walking uh, from, around? Uh, well, uh, yeah. I did, I did, you know, you know me, I kind of looked at the research and it, it's from uh, sewage water. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. So they did confirm that? Yeah. They, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if that's confirmed mm-hmm. or if that's just the likely scenario. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to imagine otherwise, but, but, you know, the brown water that, that, you know, or the gray water that, that gets spread around. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the other context and it'll be apparent in the poem is, is there's a, um, um, habitat reduction going on around our place. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you'll see in the format that I use slash, I've never used slashes between lines, but I was reading this book, which is a really wonderful book, Philip Matters. I don't know if you know his poetry. I don't actually, yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's, he's amazing. And when I saw how he used slashes, it sort of like implied contingency. Interesting. And, and uh, so I tried it. I tried it on and this sort of like mixed it with the sonnet form to see what would come from it. Yeah, very interesting. We'll have to pay attention to that, too, as you read. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Harbinger. Consider the white tail, dressed now for fall, skittish and skinny. They nose the sparse brows, scads driven here from new dozered land, where old oaks once rose by open moan fields. Consider them prophets, harbinger deer, passing among them fear, 
their white tails blaze like white flags wave, their pricked ears twitch as hordes gather here for a shivering winter. Consider the huntsmen who will stay away, they fearing mange and the wasting disease. They hear that COVID infects the herd. They note the doe's ribs starkly exposed. No flesh remains on those showing bones. Like dry rotted trees, they will fall in droves. Yeah, I love the format. I think that works really well. Harbinger. And uh, it's such an interesting question, too. I know that the MERS, the, you know, the second you know, similar coronavirus um, has the same kind of reservoir in camels. And so every once in a while it just keeps popping out um, mm. the Middle East respiratory uh, syndrome. Right. Um, yeah, so hopefully that ends up just, I don't know, hopefully the deer become immune or something. <laughs> Who knows? But hopefully. Well, or, or you know, you know, it's, it's perhaps even likely that there's no spread back to mm-hmm. to humans, but it's just sort of like a fright. When you think about how, how, um, how variants work, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, it could it could come back in in a form. I, I think that's what happened with H one N one in two thousand nine. Is it that it came back out of the wild population? Oh, really? So, hmm. um, yeah. oh, well, I well, should say that's what I read as, as I was researching this poem. <laughs> yeah. So, well, of course, crossed. I've not done the research. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so, so the other one, I apologize to a friend who cannot apologize to me. Interesting title. Is there anything you want to say about it, or you want to just jump in? No, I think I'll just jump in. This one is super raw, but we'll we'll, okay. we'll 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 see how it works. I apologize to a friend who cannot apologize to me. When a friendship is a splinter lodged so deep that even a sharpened pin cannot pick at sufficient skin to expose it, even a knife cut to the bone cannot excise it. When a friend is a platter spinner and you're a plate that needs a break rather than to be broken, and you decide to leave knowing he needs you to keep spinning to keep him from slipping. When you break it to a friend, make a broken excuse about why you can't help out this time, and he says, we're through, and you know you screw screwed up as to how you broke it to him, and you own up to it, use the right words, mean them too, and he still says, fuck you, and you say that our love is as much a part of me as a piece of shrapnel lodged too close to a nerve to remove, and that it will remain whether he is near or not, but he still stalks away won't say he'll ever return, and you say to yourself, I'll be right here. I'll be right here. Oh, that was a great poem. I love that metaphor at the end, Richard. That's really good stuff. Thanks so much for sharing it here. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I always appreciate the prompts always take us in interesting places. Awesome. Well, thanks. I'm glad we could go on the journeys with you. Uh, Thanks, Dick. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye. As uh, Richard Westheimer with I Apologize to a Friend Who Cannot Apologize to Me. And the other poem was um, Harbinger. The, um, I was thinking about how I always plan on reading more just poems from Rattle to get them into the, the podcast. And I fixed the website, too, so now the random button works again. 
And um, let me click on the, let me read a random poem or, or share it. This is, um, oh my gosh, what are the odds of this? I, I swear I did not do this on purpose. <laughs> but uh, this is Madeline Gallo uh, from May 16th, 26th. I mean, what are, wow, that's weird. So I pushed the random button, right? There are four, th- there are 5,000 poems almost in uh, Rattle and um, on the website. And the one that came up was Madeline Gallo's poem from the Rattle Young Poets Anthology. So um, this was seven years ago, and um, the same poet as the Poets Respond poem today. What? That's that, that just so strange. Like, like, seriously, my mind is a little bit blown. Sorry, everybody, for having a blown mind, but this is Summer Peaches by Madeline Gallo. I didn't even know she was in the Young Poets Anthology. So here's Summer Peaches, and I'll read it for, for Madeline. Summer Peaches for Peaches. I don't remember everything, but I remember Summer Peaches. We used to eat them in the condo at the beach for a long time. Those were the best peaches I knew. We had peaches when she came, and suddenly those Florida fruits meant nothing. We call her peaches, and she was the best one I'll ever know. She loved all of us. Our family was hers. I don't forget the way her eyes softened when she saw my father. And he would say she's one of a kind. She's in the backyard in the rivers now, and no sun shined when she died. I don't remember everything, but I remember the smell of her ashes, and I remember summer peaches. That is Madeline Gallo, and she says, um, I like to write poetry because I've grown up all my life hearing poetry. I love it, and it makes me feel good. So that is so cool to hear, to know that Madeline is um, still writing poems, and I'm just, I, I don't know, I'm speechless with the, the that the random button did that. Um, let's see. So let's do another random poem, too. That was pretty short. And now we're going to do End of Days by Marge Piercy. And this was from um, Rattle Number 30, Winter 2008. End of Days by Marge Piercy. There we go. End of Days. Almost always with cats, the end comes creeping over the two of you. She stops eating. His back legs no longer support him. She leans to your hand and purrs, but cannot rise. Sometimes a whimper of pain, although they are stoic. They see death clearly through hooded eyes. Then there is a long, weepy trip to the vets, the carrier no longer necessary, the last time in your lap. The injection is quick. Simply they stop breathing in your arms. You bring them home to bury in the flower garden, planting a bush over a deep grave. That is how I would like to cease, held in a lover's arms and quickly fading to black like an old-fashioned movie embrace. I hate the white silent scream of hospitals, the whine of pain like air conditioning's hum. I want to click the off switch, and if I can no longer choose, I want someone who loves me there, not a doctor with forty patients and his morality to keep me sort of, kind of alive and sort of undead. Why are we more rational and kinder with our pets than with ourselves or our parents? Death is not the worst thing, denying it can be. And that is Marge Piercy. And Marge is a pretty well-known poet. She says, I have been writing full-time since 1968. That's what I do. I've published 17 novels, 17 books of poetry, a memoir, edited one anthology of poetry, and written two non-fiction books. 
I give poetry readings frequently in several countries and gave speeches and lectures. I write for a living, and I write because it's my passion, and I'd rather do it than anything else. There's her uh, comment there, and that was Marge Piercy from Rattle Number 30. There's just some poems from the random button, which I'm going to do it uh, originally when I was doing that, and then some at some point on these Rattlecasts, I just forgot and stopped. So we'll hit some random poems every episode, too. And now let's go to the uh, close it up with uh, the Saiku for the week. And this is a really great news. I, the reason I, There's a couple reasons that I do a Saiku based on science news. And, and one is to show um, that you can write poems about anything, not just political topics. Because for a while, like, the submissions were just so political to Poets Respond. But, um, but it's also just cool to highlight really great news, actually. And this, uh, this here, if you can see the article, it's a little big the way it's on the screen. But um, Dancing Molecules Successfully Sever or Successfully Repair Spinal Cord Injuries. After single injection, paralyzed animals regain ability to walk within four weeks. And so there's this amazing um, nanofiber compound that helps spinal tissue repair. And it does all these things. Where's the, um, it, um, adding it to this, um, uh, the severed extensions of neurons are regenerated. Scar tissue, which can create a physical barrier to regeneration and repair, is significantly diminished. Myelin sheets start um, regrowing, functional blood vessels form and deliver nutrients to the cell, and motor neurons uh, survive more often. Um, this is in a, a rat study. So they're able to repair um, a severed rat spine um, with this injection. And the trick to it, I guess it's a compound that they've always had, but they made it dance in the same way that your cells dance. And so it sort of dances with your body in a weird way. So it meets the receptors more often and has more uptake of this, um, this, this, I don't even know what it is. Um, but whatever it has, it works and it's the dance that makes it work. And so there's a fascinating, uh, fascinating article. And then the, the Saiku was this. Twining vines, almost crossing the gap, sixth grade dance. Twining vines almost crossing the gap, sixth grade dance. That is your Saiku for today, based on the dance of these spinal cord injection thingamabobbers. And I um, hope you enjoyed that. And now the prompt for this next week coming up is going to be right here. A guy walks into a bar is one of the most common joke intros. Write a poem that starts with that line. It does not have to be a humorous poem. So uh, a guy walks into a bar... Um, write, a jo- write a poem that starts with that line. So that should be a fun one. And uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Brittany Corrigan. Um, Brittany, she read at one of our, like Ananda did, Brittany read at one of our Rattle Reading Series events in, uh, in La Cunada Flint Ridge. She did, gave a great reading, and so when she had a new book coming out, I think she has two books um, that came out really recently, I thought we'd invite her on the Rattlecast. Uh, it's Brittany Corrigan from the Portland area. Um, and the prompt is going to be a guy who walks into a bar. And that'll be Sunday, November 21st, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, for Rattlecast number 119. Hope to see you there, and hope you have a great week. In the meantime, good night.